When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Three, two, one. When I'm working out, I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer. Jim Calhoun, Welcome NASCAR icon Dale four. Earnhardt Jr., Kirk Herbstreet is Citizen. on the phone. I hope everybody is doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day. I hope everybody is ready for a loaded episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. So much to get into, so much to discuss, so much to debate. Let's talk about it. First off, the mega story. That could rock college football. Caleb Williams in the transfer portal. Former number one recruit in high school football in the class of 2021. Best quarterback available. And a guy that was awesome this year is now in the portal. And it just set off so many fascinating ripple effects. Does he decide to stay at Oklahoma? Does he decide to follow Lincoln Riley to USC? Is there another school in the mix? We discuss it all. And then, oh, by the way, how about Oklahoma basically saying, we're going to go get our own quarterback with Dylan Gabriel. What does that mean? And does it mean that Caleb Williams is definitively leaving Oklahoma? From there, we talk about the latest with Jim Harbaugh. You see this one? Harbaugh potentially back to the NFL. Listen, I know there's a lot of different reasons that that rumor could be out, but I get in, I do a deep dive on it, and I'm telling you, I think this is a layered, nuanced situation, and I could see this one going either way, either Harbaugh returning or Harbaugh going to the NFL and genuinely being interested. We'll wrap on a little bit of college hoops. A couple weeks ago, I asked you, who is number one in college basketball? I think I have an answer, and I think the answer is actually nobody. I explain why I think parity is the name of the game this year in college basketball. Makes me feel a little bit like the NFL. We react to some of the big games on Tuesday night. Kentucky loses to LSU. What does it mean for LSU? What does it mean for Kentucky? Uh, Auburn just looked awesome. Vanderbilt gets a win at Arkansas. We'll talk a little bit about that one. So busy, 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 busy show. Really fun show. Really great time of year. Great to be back to three episodes per week. But with that said, let's get to the topic of the day. And boy, oh boy, oh boy, is this what a doozy. Do you remember, I don't know, about four or five weeks ago, I said on this very show, I said, look, I know the regular season's coming to a close. I know we have bowl games. I know we have this crazy coaching carousel. But I promise you, for the first time ever, the college football transfer portal will be a topic here on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, and it's because this is the first full cycle in college football where the one-time transfer rule is now in effect. The rule where you no longer have to sit out to be eligible to play next year if you transfer in college football. If you even remember going back to last summer, college basketball went through one cycle, and it was pure insanity. You guys were, I mean, I was talking transfer stuff in college basketball until, I'm not even kidding, the middle of July. Remember Marcus Carr? He's going to the draft. He's going to the draft. He's going, no, 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 he's not going to the draft. He's coming back to college. Where's he going to go? Kofi Coburn. He's going to the draft. He's going to, oh, no, he's not only coming back to college, but he's going to go in the portal just to see what his options are. Same with Jaden Shackelford, who ended up going back to Alabama. Kofi Coburn, of course, ends up going back to Illinois. But I bring it up because this was a mega topic that went on and on and on in college basketball last summer. And I said, look, 
It's coming to college football, and it is going to be a topic here on the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, and it certainly has been over the last three, four, five weeks as Quinn Ewers entered the transfer portal, as Spencer Rattler entered the transfer portal, as Keaton Slovis, you go on and on and on down the list. Well, on Monday afternoon, we got what I would say is indisputably the biggest name in the portal as Caleb Williams. That's right, the former number one rated high school quarterback in America in 2021. Obviously, once Quinn Ewers reclassified, that was up for debate. But Caleb Williams, number one quarterback in the high school class of 2021, who came into that Red River Bowl game, Red River rivalry game, and took the world by storm, basically saved Oklahoma season. He has decided that he will, in fact, enter the transfer portal. And let me just tell you this this is, in fact, the biggest name that has entered the transfer portal in college football this offseason. And unless Bryce Young or maybe C.J. Stroud decides to do something crazy, and we know that they won't, but if they do, this is going to be the biggest name that enters the portal all year. And I know that some of you will listen, and some of you are probably Texas fans, and, well, Quinn Ewers was taking... No. Here is why Caleb Williams is so different than anybody who entered the transfer portal this offseason. It's because, one, he has the pedigree. Like I said, he is amongst the highest-rated quarterback recruits in recent high school football history. He's right up there as high as just about anybody, but unlike, say, a Quinn Ewers this year, and even unlike Justin Fields when Justin Fields entered the portal about three, four, five years ago. Remember, Justin Fields barely got on the field at Georgia except in mop-up duty. Caleb Williams not only got on the field for Oklahoma – But as I just said a minute ago, he at one point almost saved their season. He balled the heck out and was clearly, he was so good that he took the job from a guy that was the preseason Heisman Trophy winner, preseason Heisman Trophy favorite, it's Spencer Rattler. And so that is how good he is. That is how good he was. And once he stepped onto the field, he was awesome. We all watched that Red River rivalry game against Texas. We all saw Oklahoma, they can't move the ball, they're struggling, what are they going to do? Spencer Rattler, this, Spencer, oh, they go to this kid, Caleb Williams. 16 of 25 passing, 212 yards, two touchdowns, that incredible one-legged throw off of his back leg to Marvin Mims for the game. I mean, he was unbelievable, and to his credit, he never really slowed down from there. Following week, 295 yards, passing four touchdowns against TCU. Two weeks later, six touchdowns, 402 yards against Texas Tech. And I know from there there were some injuries. I know from there he wasn't great against Baylor. Again, hurt hand. I know from there he wasn't great against Oklahoma State in Bedlam. But then, oh, by the way, on top of that, he he waits, he plays in the bowl game, and he is awesome last week in the bowl game, 21 of 27, 242 yards passing, three touchdowns. And so you have a kid with the pedigree of a number one recruit, with the stats on the field to back it up, and here's the other part, two full years of eligibility left. So it's not just like you're getting him for a season and then you got to, no, you get him for two years. And so to me, this is the biggest recruit that has hit the portal, and like I said, unless C.J. Stroud or Bryce Young shocks the world, he is going to be the biggest recruit or biggest player that hits the portal all offseason. And what's so interesting about this recruitment, and we're going to get into in a minute, the schools that he may consider that he may not consider, I think Caleb Williams is so talented that I think just about any school is in the mix because there are going to be schools that have quarterbacks in place, good quarterbacks, maybe starting quarterbacks, quarterbacks with experience, or five stars that were on the bench ready to take the job. And if Caleb Williams calls and says Caleb Williams says he wants to come to your school, I don't think you have a choice but to take him. He is that good. He is that big of a difference maker. And he is going to make a lot of people uncomfortable over the next week or two while he makes this decision. I'm telling you right now, there are a lot of uncomfortable five stars, high four stars, starting quarterbacks in a lot of different places thinking, I thought I had this job. And now Caleb Williams decides to enter the transfer portal here on January 3rd. And so as we get into this decision, first of all, let me say this. Um, I know it's unpopular. I know that probably Oklahoma fans, at least until the late news on Monday night, which we'll get into in a minute, I know there's a lot of people that are uncomfortable with this. Go to Oklahoma, lead the team, take the job, and decide to leave when your coach leaves. But one, we have to understand, before we even get into the schools, this is the new world that we live in, okay? Um, Caleb Williams has every right to do this. The rules are set up in place for him to do this. 
Don't get stuck at a school. Don't stay at a school if it's not the right school for you. And let's be honest, he came to Oklahoma to be groomed by Lincoln Riley, and so he owes it to himself. He owes it to the rest of his career to go ahead and look at his options. And so with that said, uh, I do want to get into some of his options because I think even since the news broke on, I guess it was Monday afternoon, a lot has changed. And so when in terms of what schools would be best, listen, I think the first one is the most obvious one. I think it's got to be USC, right? Now, I do think that behind the scenes there was probably some angst or frustration with Lincoln Riley. I do think they were probably not very happy that he went to the podium the night of that Bedlam game and said, I am not taking the LSU coaching job, only to a couple hours later take the USC coaching job. But at the end of the day, Caleb Williams' dad said to Yahoo's Pete Thamel that the biggest factor in terms of what the next school is going to be is if they can develop his son into an NFL caliber quarterback and if they can develop him into a guy that can reach his potential as not only an NFL caliber quarterback because I think he could come play for Torres he could come play for Aaron Torres uh, at, at a you know whatever and I think I could get him to the NFL but the question is who is going to develop him into that potential number one overall draft pick which is where he was trending under Lincoln Riley at Oklahoma And so when you think about who is the best place to potentially develop him into that, I think the answer is probably still Lincoln Riley at USC. And so I think it'll be interesting to see, does Caleb Williams consider Lincoln Riley? Does he consider USC? Now, again, I know there were bridges burned, and I do think there's something to be said about the fact that USC actually has a really good starting quarterback coming back next season in Jackson Dart. USC had Keaton Slovis. He struggled. He was injured. Jackson Dart steps in. Jackson Dart plays well. Keaton Slovis transfers. And I think Jackson Dart thought that he had this job. And I will say, I think Lincoln Riley probably would have been happy going into next season with Jackson Dart. But when you have the chance to bring in Caleb Williams, you have to take advantage. And so I think USC is the first obvious one. The second one, I'll tell you this. I don't know if it would be my first choice, if I was Caleb Williams in his camp and his father. But I was told, even before Caleb Williams entered the portal, I got a text from somebody that kind of lives in that quarterback, you know, like, you know how like you, you see the quarterback camps on TV and you see the guy, somebody that lives in that space texted me probably an hour or two before Caleb Williams officially entered the portal. He said, hey, I'm just telling you, I'm hearing Caleb Williams is snooping around in the portal. And if he goes, here are a couple schools that he would consider. And the first one was the Georgia Bulldogs. And I'm not saying if I was Caleb Williams or if I was his dad after what Kirby Smart did to Justin Fields that Georgia would be my first choice. But I do think it makes sense. First of all, Stetson Bennett, fifth-year guy. I think there's some confusion. I, I, I think he technically has another year of eligibility left. But we saw Stetson Bennett against Alabama. Even if he has eligibility left, we saw what he is capable of. We saw what his limitations are, and you know if you're Georgia, if you don't get by Bama this year, and even if you do, you still got to deal with Bryce Young next year. On top of that, JT Daniels was a five-star, hasn't worked out, for whatever reason couldn't get the job back after he lost it to Stetson Bennett. And then, oh, on top of that, you have two other quarterbacks in that, that room that have yet to establish themselves. One is a kid named Brock Vandegriff, ironi- Brock Vandegriff, excuse me, Ironically, he was actually committed to Oklahoma at one point. Decommits goes to Georgia. That's what allows Caleb Williams to go to Oklahoma. And then they have another four-star named Carson Beck committed in 2022. And so I bring it up because Georgia could have as many as four guys in that QB room. But let's be honest. If Stetson Bennett doesn't get over Alabama here in a couple days, and even if he does, you still got to come back next year and go through Bryce Young at some point. And so do you want to try to do it with Stetson Bennett or, again, If you have the chance to bring in Caleb Williams, the potential number one pick in the 2023 NFL draft, that's probably a move that you have to make no matter who it upsets and no matter who it pisses off. I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's fair. I am saying this is the world that we live in now. And so I think Georgia is a real player. Because keep in mind, if you're Caleb Williams, I think your argument for Georgia is kind of simple. You're like, dude, I'm a baller. Even Kirby Smart can't screw me up. I'll go there And I will say, if the goal is to both win at the college level as well as be developed for the NFL, then I think Georgia makes a lot of sense, right? Because you know that no matter who they lose in the offseason to the NFL draft, 
the defense is going to be awesome. The skill position guys are going to be awesome. The O-line is going to be awesome. The run game is going to be awesome. And the one thing that they've never really had under Kirby Smart, and some of it is Kirby Smart's fault, again with Justin Fields, again with JT Daniels, is that super elite quarterback. And Caleb Williams, you could be that guy. And oh, by the way, maybe if you don't win the national championship this year, then you're the hero because you came in and you were the guy that put everything over the top for Georgia under Kirby Smart next year. When again, you're going to have to get through Bryce Young to win a national championship. On top of that, I think there's some other schools that make sense as well. First of all, I talked about development. I talked about the fact that Caleb Williams' dad said, look, number one priority, number one priority is developing us for the pros. Well, I think you can argue there isn't a single better quarterback developer in college football than Lane Kiffin. Now, you could fight for Ryan Day. You could fight for Lincoln Riley. You could fight for Steve Sarkeesian. I wouldn't argue. But at the same time, let's call a spade a spade here. Lane Kiffin, he's goofy, he says weird stuff, he does weird stuff, he tweets weird stuff, rat poison, whatever. Well, guess what? Lane Kiffin, when he was at Alabama, four years, four different quarterbacks, won the SEC in each year. The best quarterback he coached at Alabama, Jalen Hurts, had his best season at Alabama when Lane Kiffin was there. On top of that, he gets to Ole Miss. There's kind of this battle John Rice Plumley had actually played a bunch before Lane Kiffin gets there. He comes in. Matt Corral wins the job. Matt Corral might be the first quarterback off the board. We talked about him a ton on Monday's show. And so if you're looking strictly for quarterback development, I think Lane Kiffin makes sense. I think the big question is, is there enough around you to really feature you the way that Georgia could, the way that USC could, and of course the way that Oklahoma could if you decide to stay there. We're going to talk about Oklahoma in a second. I think it's the same vein for a couple other SEC schools that could be in the mix really quickly. LSU, Caleb Williams almost committed to LSU out of high school. This was back when Joe Brady was at LSU. Um, And LSU kind of needs a quarterback. As I record here, I'm recording right before this Texas Bowl that LSU is going into with zero available scholarship quarterbacks. Now, Garrett Nussmeyer is eligible to play, but if they play him, they have to burn a red shirt. And then on top of that, uh, LSU has a five-star named Walker Howard coming in. And so LSU is kind of an interesting one to me because I think when you look at it, it's going to be a fine line that Brian Kelly has to toe here. If he is interested in Caleb Williams, I do think the question becomes, do you want to take him and piss off this kid Walker Howard that's committed? Walker Howard's from Louisiana. You're new to Louisiana, Brian Kelly. You come in and the first week you're on the job, not the first week, but the first month you're on the job, you recruit right over a five-star kid from Louisiana? Might make it hard to recruit in Louisiana. So I think that's a push-pull that Brian Kelly has to consider. And I think Caleb Williams has to consider it as well because LSU's just, you know, bare bones right now in terms of scholarship players. They're down to 39 players for this bowl game. And then, oh, by the way, let's not forget that on top of that, uh, they right now have a very small 2022 recruiting class because their recruiting class went in a million different directions after Coach O was fired. So I don't know that they have a national championship caliber team either at LSU. Last kind of SEC team that I, th- I think of is the Florida Gators. Billy Napier, new to the SEC, nobody knows much about him. You know how you make a splash if you're Billy Napier? You go out and you get Caleb Williams, one of the top high school quarterbacks in recent history. All of a sudden, bing, bang, boom, Billy Napier just showed the whole SEC, hey, I ain't here to play. Now, I will say the, con- the, the, the negative with Billy Napier in, in Florida is the same with Brian Kelly and LSU, which is, and by the way, that was weird saying Brian Kelly and LSU. The weird part is, is the idea that if you take Caleb Williams, the guy that's projected to be a starter next year for you, Billy Napier, at Florida, is a kid named Anthony Richardson, who is not only from Florida, he's from Gainesville. So you talk about pissing off the locals right away. That's one way to do it real quick, Billy Napier. And so I think there's a a, a delicate push-pull balance there. But then again, If you bring in Caleb Williams to a school that is used to competing for national championships, that is used to having fun offenses under Steve Spurrier, under Urban Meyer, with Danny Werfel, with Tim Tebow, I think you got to consider it if you're Billy Napier. A couple other schools, you know, I will say, uh, Brandon Huffman, really good recruiting writer, he referenced UCLA, and we're going to get to UCLA because they had a kid named Dylan Gabriel committed. Dylan Gabriel ain't committed no more, and we'll get to him in a second. And they need a starting quarterback. How interesting would it be if UCLA got in the mix, of course, and Caleb Williams went there, 
and was competing against, oh, I don't know, Lincoln Riley in town every year going forward. Oregon, I think, is going to need a quarterback. They took Bo Nix, but guess what? You got a chance to get Caleb Williams. You, you push Bo Nix aside and say, good luck. You know, good luck at uh, wherever, but we got to go get Caleb Williams. And so I think there's other schools, but this is fascinating. And the final thing I would say about this Caleb Williams thing, and this is the most interesting part. I did a quick reaction on YouTube on Monday immediately following the news, and I said, I actually think the most likely possibility amongst all of this is that Caleb Williams actually goes back to Oklahoma. If you saw when Caleb Williams made his announcement that he wants to transfer, that he's considering transferring, he said returning to Oklahoma is absolutely a possibility. Remember, he played in the bowl game. On top of that, he went to Oklahoma basketball games during the break. And so I think there was a, a belief at Oklahoma that he was planning on staying. It's worth noting, by the way, a couple guys pulled out of the transfer portal believing that Caleb Williams was returning. Theo Wees, who was one of their top wide receivers in 2020, he was banged up for most of 2021, pulled his name out of the portal thinking that Caleb Williams was coming back. So to me, I actually think that the best spot for him probably would have been Oklahoma because remember, yes, they're bringing in a defensive-minded coach in Brent Venables, but they also brought in an offensive coordinator named Jeff Lebby who worked under Lane Kiffin the last few years. And so when Brent Venables made that hire, it was clear that he was basically sitting there saying to himself, look, I got to get somebody as my offensive coordinator that can convince Caleb Williams to stay. And so I actually thought the most logical landing spot for Caleb Williams was going to be to just actually stay at Oklahoma. But then a funny thing happened from there. Did you see what happened on Monday night? Dylan Gabriel, who played at Central Florida, who actually was coached by Jeff Lebby, the guy I just mentioned, the new Oklahoma offensive coordinator, he was committed to go to UCLA, out of the portal, start his career at Central Florida, commits to go to UCLA, he's from Hawaii, everyone thinks, oh, he's going back to the West Coast. He announces on Monday night that he's not going to UCLA, and he's going to Oklahoma. And so I bring it up because that is a fascinating plot twist. I thought Caleb Williams was going to go back to Oklahoma. I really did. But now they take another quarterback. And I'll just tell you this. This is my last thought, and then we'll wrap and we'll get on to some other stuff. But I bring it up because I am just telling you, what is so fascinating to me about this is this shows you the new world of college football that we currently live in. For years, we've wanted all these players to have all these rights, and they got them. One-time transfer rule, NIL etc. And it's good. I'm not complaining. As I just said a minute ago, I think Caleb Williams made the right decision by going to see what his options are. But you know who else now is sitting start, starting to sit back and say, well, wait a second now. All these kids got options. We got to protect ourselves too. It's the coaches. It's the coaches because the Oklahoma staff, was sitting, they, they were sitting there saying, Caleb, we love you. We want you. We want to win a national championship with you right here in Norman. But guess what? We can't sit around and wait for a week because Dylan Gabriel was set to start classes at UCLA, and once he starts classes at UCLA, he has to stay at UCLA. And so the Oklahoma staff kind of sat there and said, we can't wait. We got to go. We can't hang on anymore. We can't wait for you, Caleb Williams. And so I find it fascinating that this is now the world that we live in. Yes, all the players have the rights, but guess what? The coaches are sitting there and starting to say, too, wait a second now. We got to protect ourselves, and on top of that, we got to do what's best for our program today because nothing's guaranteed. I look at the situation at Georgia where there's four quarterbacks potentially in that room next year, and Kirby Smart may go get another one. You know why? Because if Kirby Smart loses to Alabama next Monday and he gets embarrassed, he knows that clock is ticking again, and he knows that next year he's got to go through Bryce Young. And so Kirby Smart's protecting his own butt by saying, yeah, I like you, Stetson Bennett. I like you, JT Daniels. I like you, Brock Vandegrift. But I got to rock. I got to go get the guy that's best for me. So I find it fascinating because this is the new world that we live in. We're not only our co coach, uh, not only our players now more empowered than ever, but coaches are protecting their own butts. This is a new world, and it's going to be fascinating to watch. Caleb Williams, again, I would argue the most high-profile transfer that we have had certainly this offseason, maybe since Jalen Hurts, maybe since Justin Fields. 
I do not know. But this is going to be a fascinating recruitment to watch. And what I would also say is, get ready for a decision to come down pretty quick because I looked it up uh, you know, on Tuesday morning just for fun. This is what Torres does at his free time. USC starts its classes next Monday, January 10th. Oklahoma, or excuse me, Georgia starts its classes January 10th. And so because of that, these schools don't have very much time to sit back and wait around. All right, this is what I want to do. First of all, great opening segment. But I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to talk Harbaugh and the possibility. I really do think this time he might be going to the NFL. All right, everybody. I'm back. Going to be back. Going to be back. And I do... I guess to a degree you want to switch gears, but I want to stay in the football space, right? Because it's crazy. It's the middle of January, or at least the first full week of January. And you think, okay, we got one college football playoff game left. What else could we talk about besides Georgia, Alabama when it comes to college football? Then Caleb Williams enters the transfer portal on Monday. And then Tuesday, you all saw the report. You know what I'm talking about. That's right. Our favorite Michigan man. Our favorite guy who wears khakis and tinted glasses. The man who just led his alma mater back to the college, well, not back to, to the college football playoff for the first time in school history, competed at the highest level for a national championship since 1997. Our old buddy Jim Harbaugh. Did you see the report from The Athletic on Tuesday that there is mutual interest between Jim Harbaugh and a return to the NFL? That's right, the man that is basically John Calipari of football, the man that is always linked to the NFL, has once again been linked to the NFL by a credible report from The Athletic. And so I want to dive into it, and I want to look at this from all angles. But what I would tell you is this. What I would tell you is that you guys and girls know I love to come on this show and give big, bold, declarative statements This is going to happen. That's going to happen. This is going on for this exact reason. But in this Jim Harbaugh report, what I can tell you is this. I can actually see both sides to what this report might be about. I think there's a lot of people that automatically see a report like this and assume, well, Harbaugh wants a contract extension. He wants a raise. And that's why this report has come out. And I can see that side. And I think there's others that say, maybe it is time for him to go back to the NFL. And I can see that side as well. And so I want to break it down from all angles. But let me tell you, this is one, sometimes I can can sniff it out. You see, that's me sniffing right there. There's times I can sniff it out. There's times I can say right away, this is going to happen. Quinn Ewers is going to, like, but this is one, I can see both sides to it. And so let's get into it. Let's break it down because the report comes out Tuesday afternoon. And I think the immediate reaction, the first reaction, and this is a little backstory to get to the real story itself. Is well, I mean, obviously Harbaugh is just just looking for a pay raise. I mean, we all know the story. We all know Jim Harbaugh took a massive pay rate pay decrease this year. And obviously this report is out because he all wants it, but that he that he wants it all back. And normally when a report like this comes out, I tend to believe that side of the story. Because we all know who is leaking these kinds of stories in situations like this. It's almost always agents on behalf of their client who is the head coach, whether it's college football, NFL, college basketball, whatever it is. It's almost always the agent looking to get more money. Here's the problem with that narrative with this Jim Harbaugh situation. Jim Harbaugh doesn't have an agent. And that's what makes this especially interesting to me. And I know Jim Harbaugh doesn't have an agent because this same exact thing happened about two, three years ago, maybe even last year. I can't even remember. But there was a story that came out early in the season. It was during the season. Well, Harbaugh is pursuing NFL options per his representatives. And Harbaugh, it was in the middle of a big recruiting cycle. It was in the middle of the season. Harbaugh had to put out a statement that said, I don't have representatives. I negotiate all of my own contracts to a degree, and I'm sure he has a lawyer look things over and stuff like that, but he doesn't have an agent that's going to the table, going to the bat for him, holding uh, you know, the AD for every nickel and penny he can. That's part of the reason, why, by the way, that that contract renegotiation last offseason went so smoothly, happened so easily. It's because he didn't have a million agents in his corner trying to pinch pennies here, there, the other thing. He just said, look, I stunk, let's get this fixed, whatever. So when I see a report like this, knowing that Jim Harbaugh doesn't have an agent, 
I know that unless the report isn't true, and Bruce Feldman is a great reporter, so I absolutely believe that it's true, these reports are coming from somewhere close from either Jim Harbaugh himself or someone very, very, very close to him, which makes it very appealing to me. Now, in terms of both sides, let's let's break them down because I do think uh, it, I think it could be either side at this point. And so when I look at this, let's start with the idea, the possibility. And I do think it's a possibility, by the way. And I think this is most people's reaction. The reaction was that. Well, I mean, he's coming off a college football playoff. He wants a massive extension. He wants a big pay rate, and I can totally buy that. If that is the reason this report came out, I 100% buy that, and if it means Jim Harbaugh is the head coach of Michigan next year, I could absolutely buy that as well, and it's with good reason, right? Because like I just said a minute ago, we all know the narrative from last offseason. I've talked about it on this podcast, frankly, since last January, last February, when the whole process happened. When Jim Harbaugh, coming off a 2-4 and four season, we didn't know if he was going to get fired. We didn't know if he was going to leave for the NFL. We didn't know what he was going to do. But we knew that it couldn't go on like that because Jim Harbaugh was like an eight eight and a half million dollars a year coach at the time. He was the second, third, fourth highest paid coach in college football. He was pay- getting paid Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney money for definitively not Nick Saban and Dabo Sweeney results. And so something had to change. And so I could see the scenario where a year after he took a massive pay cut, he's leaking this report to just say, look, I was a good soldier. I did what I needed to do. I did what I had to do for the good of this school as a whole. Well, guess what? Now it's your turn to pay. Now, as the old saying goes, the rabbit got the gun. And what the rabbit got the gun basically means is, you know, if you're hunting, you're hunting, you're hunting, you're hunting to shoot rabbits. Well, what happens when the rabbit gets the gun and he's pointing the gun back at you? Well, that's Jim Harbaugh right now because he's saying, look, I did everything you asked of me. I took that massive pay cut. Well, now guess what? Now I got you over a barrel and it's time for you to pay me. And I can see that scenario for a couple reasons. First of all, Jim Harbaugh's, I don't know how to describe him. I don't know if vind- I don't think vindictive is necessarily the right word, but I mean he's a grudge holder. He's a guy that y- you think he he you think he's just going to bite his lip, take a massive pay cut and never keep that in the back of his head, never keep it in the back of his head that you guys doubted me at this time last year. Well, guess what? Now, it's the middle of January, it's the beginning of January. There's no one out there that you can hire. Y'all got to pay me. I could see that being a scenario. I could see Jim Harbaugh saying, yeah, I played nice this time last year. Yeah, I did what you needed me to do. But guess what? There's no more playing nice. I'm coming off a 12-win season, a college football playoff appearance, a Big Ten championship, and, of course, a win against Ohio State. And I also think if Jim Harbaugh is doing that, it's perfectly logical, and let me explain why. And it's because of what I say on this show all the time. Stuff changes really quick in college sports. If you remember... When Dabo Sweeney was linked to all these jobs, LSU, whatever, I said, look, I'm not saying Dabo's going to leave and he clearly isn't leaving, but I said, stuff changes. A year ago, everything was great. Now at the time, he's two and three, three and three, four and three, whatever his record was. Everybody's questioning him. Everybody's mad. Maybe he's like, dude, screw Clemson. I'm out. I need a fresh start. Same with Lincoln Riley. Stuff changes. Everything's going good. Top 10 recruiting classes, all these great, all this great talent in this program. Then I don't know where his school decides to go to the SEC, and he's like, I'm getting the hell out of here. I don't want nothing to do with the SEC. I don't want to go 8-4 and four in the SEC when I'm going 11-1 and one in the Big, Ten every, Big 12 every year. And what has changed in college football and why I think Jim Harbaugh, this could be a negotiating ploy, is a $7 million a year coach ain't that big of a deal anymore. Mel Tucker just got $95 million, and he's currently 18-14 and 14 as a head coach. And I'm not saying Mel Tucker didn't deserve it. And I'm not saying, listen, go get all your money. I hope everybody gets paid. But Mel Tucker's a a nine-and-a-half-year coach. James Franklin just signed a $70 million extension off of a seven-and-five season. And so, again, could I see the scenario where Jim Harbaugh's like, you want me to make how much? Like $3 million a year in incentives? Oh, no, 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 no. That dude down the street in East Lansing, I know I just lost to him this year, my only regular season loss. If that dude's making nine five with one eleven win seat, one ten win season, whatever it was, eleven wins, I think. Well, if that dude's making nine five, I just beat Ohio State, won the Big Ten, went to the college football playoff. I gotta be worth eight, nine, ten, right? Get me that money. So I could see that scenario. But I could also see the scenario that maybe Jim Harbaugh really does want to move on to the NFL. And I know it sounds crazy, right? Like like he has that huge win in Ann Arbor, great victory, fans on the field, people are crying, grandfathers and grandsons, they never thought they'd see the day Michigan beats Ohio State. 
So how could he possibly want to leave for the NFL? Well, I think that last part is the important part. First of all, it's worth noting, like the jobs that he's linked to do make sense. Because if you go back and look, these are two jobs that he's been basically linked to forever. There's really three NFL jobs that, that Jim Harbaugh has been linked to every time he's linked to the NFL. One is the Miami Dolphins because their owner, Stephen Ross, is a Michigan alum. So he's been linked to the Miami Dolphins for 100 years. Heck, when, when, uh, you know, when he left San Francisco, he was linked to the Miami Dolphins. And I think the Michigan boosters threw a fit and were like, dude, you're, you're a Michigan alum and you're going to hire him for the, for the Dolphins? Get him to Michigan. Um, but then two, on top of the Dolphins, there's been two other jobs that he's been linked to. Obviously, the Dolphins aren't going to open up, right? Brian Flores is awesome. Two, they won a million games. I know they're not going to make the playoffs, but whatever. But in addition to the situation with the Miami Dolphins, there are two other jobs that he is regularly linked to. One is the Chicago Bears, and the other is the Raiders, who are now in Las Vegas. The Chicago Bears, the tie is obvious. He played, for, played in Chicago, played under uh, Mike Ditka, still has ties in the organization. It's not very far from where he lives now. And then the Raiders are the Raiders. They've always had, I don't know what the exact relationship is with Jim Harbaugh, but he's always been kind of linked there. He's kind of a renegade himself. It's a renegade organization. He was in the Bay Area forever with Stanford and San Francisco, the 49ers. And so I bring it up because part of the reason that this NFL stuff makes sense is because of the fact that the jobs that are available make sense for him. I don't know that Jim Harbaugh makes sense if the Seattle Seahawks open up and they're rebuilding because they trade Russell, uh, Russell Wilson. I don't know if he makes sense for, I don't know, the Carolina Panthers, and I'm not saying the Carolina Panthers are going to open, or the Houston Texans, or the Los Angeles Chargers, but he makes sense for the Bears, and he makes sense for the Raiders, and we know the Raiders almost certainly are going to be open because they have an interim head coach, and we know the Bears are going to be open because there ain't no way you're bringing back Matt Nagy, and there's a possibility that Ryan Day could be in the mix there. So one, the jobs actually make sense for Harbaugh, and then two, I do think that it's at least possible that Harbaugh could be thinking about the 30,000-foot view of a couple things. One, I'm 58 years old, and if I ever want to get back to the NFL, now's the time to do it. Two, my stock for the NFL will never be higher. If I come back to college and I go even 8-4 and four next year, but I don't beat Ohio State, I get run out of the building by 30 in Columbus— I'm not as valuable to the NFL anymore, and I always kind of visualize myself ending my career in the NFL. That's a possibility. What I also think is absolutely a possibility, and Michigan fans aren't going to want to hear this, is Harbaugh looking in the mirror saying, this is as good as it gets at Michigan. This is as good as it gets at Michigan because we know why ultimately Jim Harbaugh was brought back to Michigan. I mean, it's no secret, right? He was brought back to Michigan to win the Big Ten, to compete for national championships, and to beat Ohio State. And it took him till year seven, but what, did, what happened this year? Won the Big Ten, competed for a national championship, and beat Ohio State. And so I do think there's a possibility Jim Harbaugh could be looking around sitting here saying, like, look, dude, one, I, came, I, I, did what I, 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 I did what I came here to accomplish. Those three things, win the Big Ten, compete for a national championship, beat Ohio State. I did it. It's done. And if I had left before this, I would have left – a, a, a wildly unfulfilling legacy in which I didn't accomplish anything, in which I won a million games against Maryland and Northwestern and Rutgers, and no, none of them mattered. And none of them mattered, and none of it was worth anything. But now I did what I came to do. I beat Ohio State. I beat, uh, you know, I, 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 I made the college football playoff. I promised you I'd get, get us there, and I did. And then I think beyond that, there's the other part of this as well, which is pretty straightforward. Again, is this as good as it gets? I accomplished what I came to accomplish, and if I don't accomplish it again going forward, then it's back to me being the putts and the, the khakis. Nobody likes me. I'm no good. I need to get out of here. Um, because let's be honest. Like, like, like you think about what happened with Michigan and Ohio State, and, and I thought the Michigan story was incredible. I'm happy for Harbaugh. I'm happy for Michigan. I'm happy for their fans. But let's also call a spade a spade here, right? Just about everything had to break right to get over the hump this year. Right group of players. Harbaugh talked about how much all these guys love football. They love being in the building. He loved being around them. New staff, young, energetic staff. Everybody's happy to be there. A bunch of Michigan alums. Everybody, all of them are young guys. A lot of them first year, first major coaching opportunity. And oh, by the way, you happen to just so happen to get Ohio State at home in a year where their defense can't stop anybody. And you play hardball ball and you run the ball right at him. Well, you don't think Ohio State's going to regroup? 
You don't think some of those uh, assistant coaches are going to be looking for bigger jobs this offseason? You don't think those assistant coaches are going to be uh, looking for raises and maybe not, not happy to just be there next year or the year after? You think Ohio State, I know I just said it, you don't think they're going to fix that defense and you don't think they're going to be just much more formidable next year? And so I just bring it up to very simply say that I could see that scenario too. I could see the scenario I talked about five, six, seven minutes ago in which Jim Harbaugh really is just using this as a negotiating ploy, saying Mel Tucker's making 9-5 a year and you want me to work for three in incentives. But I could also see the scenario where he's sitting there saying, man, everything broke right this year. Everything worked out for me. We beat Ohio State, but if I come back next year, and even if we go 9-3 and three but lose to Ohio State, then it's back again, and I'm just a failure, and I'm just Harbaugh, and you guys hate me again. And I could see that scenario as well. So what do I do? Great segment, by the way. I, that, that segment got me fired up. I, I love I, – I'll, <laughs> I'll just ramble really quick before we get to uh, college hoops. But I love stories like this. Because I love looking at things from every angle and the possibility and why this could happen. So I think it's a fascinating story. I think it's worth noting. But this is what I want to do. That little 30-second ramble there, which made no sense, pretend you never heard it. I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. I want to talk college hoops. I had an interesting thought after Tuesday night's games, and I also want to get to some of the other big games from college hoops on Tuesday and Monday. I will be right back. All right, everybody, I am back. Good to be back, good to be back. Final time today, want to wrap on some college hoops. And it's getting to be that time, people. Uh, as I just said a minute ago with Harbaugh, we are down to one college football game left in the college football season. And then it's college hoops time, baby. January is here. We're in the conference play. It seems like every night we have meaningful, impactful, important games I think we're hopefully starting to move past some of the COVID insanity of the last month. And so let's hope that we get two, three, three months of really good college basketball leading into March. Of course, the NCAA tournament and Final Four and National Championship. And Tuesday, this really feels like the first week where it's like every single night there's, there's like meaningful, important games on. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about some of the games over the last couple days. But I want to start with a bigger picture thought that I had watching a bunch of games on Tuesday night. All right. Kentucky played LSU. Duke played Georgia Tech. Baylor played Oklahoma. Kansas played at Oklahoma State. And something struck me as I, watch all, as I watched all of those games. Remember about a week, week and a half, two weeks ago I did a show and one of the topics that we did is I said, who's number one in college basketball? Is it this team? Is it Baylor? Is it Purdue? Is it Duke? And something struck me on Tuesday night as I was watching college basketball. I don't think there is a definitive number one indisputable or even top two or three in college foot basketball this year. I think there's probably about 8, 10, 12, 15 teams that on any given night, anybody can beat anybody else. And I'll tell you this, I think it's good for the sport. And as I said, I think it is going to make for a fascinating final two, two and a half months of this season. Now let's get into it. Let's talk about it because I know there's probably some Baylor fans listening. Uh, what do you mean there's no definitive best team? Baylor, we're the defending champs. We're number one. And like Baylor, I can, listen, Baylor's awesome. I was on the Baylor train two years ago. I was on the Baylor train in 2019 into 2020 before nobody even knew who Davion Mitchell was. I was already wearing the Davion Mitchell jersey. So it's not as though I haven't been on the Baylor bandwagon. Baylor is a deserving number one team in the country. They're 14-0, one of only three undefeated teams left in college basketball, along with Colorado State and USC, who had those as the final three undefeated teams on January 5th. But they are one of the only three undefeated teams, a clear-cut definitive number one, and they're like a really good team. They're awesome, right? Like James Akinjo, I don't know where everyone all of a sudden is like, James Akinjo's an All-American. He was awesome last year in Arizona. Matt Meyer's really good. Uh, Adam Flagler's coming into his own. Flo Th you go on and on down. They're a very deserving number one team. But at the same time, they were also number one or number two all year last year. And let's call a spade a spade. This team is really good. It ain't even close to last year. And I think some Baylor fans would disagree. I I'll fight that. I'll fight you to the death. I love you guys. I love Baylor fans. This team's not as good as last year, and that's not a bad thing. Think about it. First of all, just this weekend, play at Iowa State. Iowa State's a really good team. Fringe top 25 team. 
They're ranked. They're good. They're solid. They're deserving of every accolade that they've had. Iowa State isn't great, though. First-year head coach, T.J. Otzelberger, they're really good. They're probably, again, I know they're ranked number 11, but they're probably somewhere in that 15 to 25 range. And Baylor beats them by five on the road. And that's a great win. And I'm never going to disregard a team going on the road and getting a win against a ranked team. Never, 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 never. But at the same time, let's go back to last year. That game on the road against a, a probably the 15 to 25th best team, Baylor doesn't win that by five. They win it by 15. They win it by 20. They win it by 30. Um, oh, by the way, on Tuesday night, Baylor takes care of Oklahoma at home. 10-point margin of victory. It was a six-point game with five minutes to go. Could have gone either way. James Akinjo made some plays. Baylor won. And they deserve to win. They're the definitive number one team in the country. But, like, it's not indisputable. They deserve to be ranked. We have to rank somebody number one. It's funny. It, it reminds me a little bit. Do you remember about, I don't know, uh, probably six weeks ago, I remember when the college football playoff rankings were coming out. And I remember talking about it on this show. At the time, Georgia was a clear-cut number one. But then Alabama lost to Texas A&M. And Oregon had that loss to Stanford. And Michigan State lost to Purdue. And all of a sudden you looked up and at one point it was like, okay, Georgia's number one. And there's a bunch of teams that feel like they should be ranked three, four, five, or four, five, six, or six, seven, eight. But there wasn't like a definitive two and a definitive three. And that's kind of how I feel like with college basketball this year. I think there's a lot of teams that are like in that conversation for a number one or number two seed somewhere, probably the second, third, fourth, fifth. I don't think there's a definitive number one because beyond Baylor, think about it. Who's number two in the current polls right now, according to the AP? It's Duke. And I love Duke. And I've said all along, I'd probably have Duke at number one if I was voting because their only loss was on the road to Ohio State, a really good Ohio State team in a game that Duke controlled. But I was also watching Duke on Tuesday night. They play Georgia Tech. Funny game. Uh, Michael DeVoe, Georgia Tech stars chirping at Coach K. But it was a close game. And, Duke, and I know Duke's coming off a of COVID pause, but Duke's played two ACC games. Both of them are at home. They took care of business by eight last night against Georgia Tech. And before that, they played Virginia Tech at home, played pretty uninspired right before uh, the holidays. And one by 11, or they beat Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech's 0-3 in the, big, in the ACC. And so I bring it up because Duke, Duke's really good. But let's not call this Duke, you know, this isn't Duke with Zion and RJ. This is a, a really, really good Duke team. But I think even in the pantheon of Duke teams, it's probably the second, third, fourth Duke, best Duke team in the last decade. Wouldn't you agree? Won a title in 2015. I'd argue that team's better. Won a title in 2010. I'd, like, so Duke's really good. Based on this year in college basketball, deserves to be ranked where they are. But I don't think this is a dominant Duke team. Purdue, Purdue's number three in the AP poll. They just lost to Wisconsin. They can't defend anybody. Gonzaga's good, but they're not as good as last year. UCLA's good, but how good are they? We don't know. They've been on COVID pause forever. They finally returned to the court on Thursday night. Kansas is good, but really, Kansas, I mean, look at Kansas's schedule. Who have they really played this season since they opened the year against Michigan State? What are their best wins? At St. John's, Missouri at home, Nevada with Steve Alford, at Oklahoma State, which is unranked and now has five losses on the season. And so I just bring it up to just simply say, I don't think there is a definitive best team. Like I said, I think there's probably 12, 15 teams that on any given night can beat anybody else. And I think back to last year, and I think about how, and I, and to even backtrack, I think it's a good thing that there is no elite team in college basketball. Because if you go back to last year, if you remember, think about last year. It was like as soon as the season starts. Literally, Gonzaga plays Kansas on the opening day. They win by 12. It's a dominant effort. It wasn't even as close as the final score indicated. And from that day forward, it was like, oh, Gonzaga's the truth. Gonzaga's going to be a problem. And then every game, it was just, are they going to get to the tournament undefeated? Are they going to win the national championship? Are they going to be undefeated? Can they finally win the national championship? If they don't win the national championship, are they over? That was the whole season. That was all the season boiled down to. That was it. Baylor, it was the same. Start off the year. They're unbeatable. They're unbeatable. They're unbeatable. They're unbeatable. They're unbeatable. Go on COVID pause. Lose to Kansas. Yeah, but. Then they start rolling. Then they get into the NCAA tournament. And it just felt like all season long, we knew they were the two best teams. And it was just a question of, was either one going to lose in the tournament? And if so, how did it happen? 
And if they played each other, who's better? Well, now this year, on any given night, we're getting a ton of great games because I just don't think anybody is indisputably better than anybody else. Like I said, Purdue just lost at home the other night. Purdue now has two losses in Big Ten play. Um, You know, Duke is in the ACC. The ACC stinks, so I don't know how much Duke is going to be challenged. But when you're beating Georgia Tech, like a decent Georgia Tech team by nine at home, what happens when you go on the road at Virginia? What happens when you go on the road at Wake Forest, which is all of a sudden playing really good basketball? What happens when you go on the road against North Carolina, which I know is struggling right now? But North Carolina plays well at home. And so I look at this season, and in a lot of ways, you know what it actually reminds me of? I was thinking about this. Is it reminds me of the NFL. Like, what do we love about the NFL? Is that really on any given Sunday, really kind of sort of anything can happen, right? Like, the Kansas City Chiefs are absolutely rolling. Then Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase out of nowhere, you look up and you're like, oh my God, is that the best young wide receiver quarterback combo in the league? Because I think it is. I like Patrick Mahomes and Tyreek Hill two years ago. Those two, Joe Burrow and Jamar Chase, are awesome. Or on any given Sunday, Tom Brady, uh, putting aside what Antonio Brown did, Tom Brady and the the Bucs, the defending Super Bowl champs, are down against the Jets. and, And so... I bring it up because I think that's what college basketball is going to be this year, where once you think you have a team figured out, you have something like what happened on Tuesday night where Providence gets smoked by Marquette. Marquette's a good team. Marquette's an NCAA tournament team. Providence, I think, is probably the best team in the Big East, but it's not so indisputable that they can just go on the road to Marquette and just win because they're so much better than everybody else. Um, I think Auburn's really good. I don't think Auburn's unbeatable, though. You go back to the LSU game, they got up 18-1, to great effort. LSU played them even from there. Kentucky, we're going to talk Kentucky-LSU. I think Kentucky's really good too. I think on any given night, it, it, I, the point I'm trying to make, this is going to be a really fun year in college basketball, and it just reminds me a lot of the NFL, where again, on any given night, a lot of different stuff could happen. We saw it on Tuesday night. And I think that's honestly good for the sport. I think it's good for the sport to have more than one or two teams that is completely dominant and running away with the season. With that said, let's go ahead and wrap on a couple games from Tuesday night. Uh, We already hit on a few of them, so I probably won't go over too much from from some of the the marquee games from Tuesday. Baylor takes care of business against Oklahoma. Listen, Baylor fans, I'm sorry if you got offended that I said you're not as good as last year when he won the national championship every tournament game by double figures. But uh, I think Baylor's really good. They take care of Oklahoma. Duke takes care of Georgia Tech. Nothing really to write home about. Um, You know, I don't think that's a game that that Duke fans are going to be telling their grandchildren about 30 years from now. And so those were kind of some of the marquee games. Again, uh, Marquette beats Providence on and on. But with that said, let's get to one game that I do kind of want to go a little bit more in depth on, and that is LSU against Kentucky. LSU wins 65-60, to 60, and that's kind of the game that I was kind of just talking about a minute ago, where on any given night, one little thing happens. One, This is, this, this is what this year in college basketball is, right? Uh, LSU at home really needs a win. Kentucky has an injury early. All of a sudden, LSU gets that W at home. Now, in terms of these two two teams specifically, again, I don't think there's any major takeaways to take away from, from this. What I will say is LSU is kind of interesting to me, and I'll tell you why. LSU is interesting because, to me, they're kind of the modern version of what college basketball is and where it's going. Uh, and, no, it has nothing to do with Will Wade and it has nothing to do with, like, that kind of stuff. But it, it's because if you listen to this podcast, you obviously love college sports, right? And if you love college sports, you know that certain teams and certain programs have identities, not just in college basketball, but in college football. Uh, You know, Michigan, physical, tough football, Georgia, defense, uh, Lincoln Riley, he's going to throw the ball and high-powered offenses, all that good stuff, right? Well, LSU is kind of an example of where college basketball is in that every single year, It's just going to be different. We live in this transfer portal world, this one-and-done world, where things change quickly, where systems change quickly. And I don't think there's a better example of that this year than LSU. Last season, that was a team, if you remember, with Cam Thomas, with Trenton Watford, with Javante Smart. If they didn't score 85 points, they weren't beating you. I mean, they were one of the worst defensive teams in major college basketball. They end up getting to the second round of the tournament where they lose to Michigan. 
And then you have this year where they completely revamped their roster on the fly. They have a bunch of guys go pro. They have a few guys transfer. And now they are one of the best defensive teams in college basketball. When I watch LSU, I'm going to be honest. I really enjoy them. I think they're really fun. They're super athletic. They play hard. They defend their butts off. The Kitari Eason off the bench is phenomenal. Xavier Pinson, I think, is a great lead guard for that team. Brandon Murray, a little bit of a do-it-all kind of guy for them. But they are athletic. They defend their butts off. And again, I think they are the perfect example of what modern college basketball is, where last year they play one definitive way. This year they have a new group of guys and they have to play completely differently. And I'll just tell you this. If you're a college basketball program that has a, a coach that has a system and recruits to a be ready. Be ready to adjust on the fly. Things are changing. This sport is changing. LSU is a good example of that. By the way, I would say this. Baylor is a great example of that, too. Baylor last year, all guards, four guys. They can all beat you off the dribble. They can all shoot threes. This year, they're a little bit more wing-dominated, a little bit more wing-oriented. They probably defend the wings and guards a little bit better. This is just the world we live in. Back to LSU Kentucky, though, because from Kentucky's perspective, look, I know every Kentucky game is overanalyzed and overbroken down, and what does it all mean, and I've said for years, Kentucky basketball is the only college basketball program that is covered like a college football program. In other words, when you win, everything's great, everything's amazing, love it. And when you lose, the sky is falling, what do we have to do, what went wrong, all that good stuff. And when it comes to Kentucky, I don't think there's like some massive, major, unbelievable, incredible takeaway from the LSU game on Tuesday night. You went on the road. LSU's a legitimate, I believe, probably one of the top 15 teams in the country. They're not great offensively, but they're really good. They're really athletic. They defend their butts off. You went on the road. Your starting point guard goes down, what, four minutes into the game, doesn't return. Ty Ty Washington, your combo guard that had to take over as point guard, goes down with cramps with about 10 minutes left. And he still had a chance to win that game late. But what ended up happening is, we know what ended up happening. You don't have a point guard for the final 15 minutes of the game. The offense stops working. You're up 50 to 41 with 13 minutes to go, and you only score 10 points in the final 13 minutes. And so I know everybody wants to overreact. I know everybody, what does it mean? What about this? You were on the road. Your best player, Oscar Shibuya, was in foul trouble early. Your point guard gets hurt early. Your backup point guard, who's basically one of your best scoring guards, uh, it, it go, goes ahead and gets cramped up. And you still have a chance to win. And so if you're Kentucky, listen, your next two games, Georgia at home at Vanderbilt, go on the road, go, go, go take care of business in those next two games, get back on track, and you're going to be fine. Obviously, um, you know, I, I, you got to keep everybody healthy. You got to make sure Ty Ty Washington's fine, all that good stuff. What I would also say about Kentucky, there was one other thing, a couple other things. One, Jacob Toppin was awesome. I tweeted it out. You can argue with me. You can debate. You can do whatever. He's their best NBA prospect. There is no debate in my mind. Uh, Ty Ty Washington is fine. Damian Collins may get there one day. Kellen Grady's a really good college basketball player. Jacob Toppin's an NBA player. He hasn't figured it all out yet, but how many college basketball players figure it out at the college level before going to the NBA? That kid is awesome. The other funny thing that cracked me up on Tuesday night, I've heard for two years, Calipari system, Calipari's offense, Cal Calipari, Calipari. Well, what happened on Tuesday? What happened last week? What happened against Missouri in the SEC opener? Because I see Kellen Grady hitting a lot of wide-open three-pointers. I see Davion Mintz hitting a lot of wide-open three-pointers. So I don't know that it was Calipari's system as much as they didn't have the right players last year. B.J. Boston, Devin Askew. Uh, I hate to bring up this name because he obviously passed away this summer, the late Terrence Clark. They just weren't the right fit for that team, the right, the right fit for that system, especially in a year in COVID where there was limited practice, limited opportunities, limited interactions, limited all that stuff. So if you're Kentucky, you bounce back, you do what you got to do, and I do think you'll ultimately be okay going forward. Uh, a couple other results from Saturday, uh, or from Tuesday, excuse me. Uh, one, Auburn. Okay, Auburn is awesome. And I'll give them a ton of credit because even coming into Tuesday, I said, okay, Auburn is really good. They're one of those teams I was just talking about. They're in that 12 to 15 that I think is really good that can beat anybody on any given night. But are they that good? Or are they really good in certain spots with the big guys and all this and all that? No, they're that good. Because Tuesday was the game that if Auburn was going to have the letdown, this would be it, right? Um, you know, you have the big home SEC opener against LSU, two best teams in the conference coming into conference play. 
I don't know if they're the two best teams in the conference, but coming into conference play, they were playing well. You win at home. Now you got to go on the road. Now you got to play South Carolina. South Carolina's feisty. The building is half empty. It's a 6.30 Eastern time tip-off. And if there's ever a game that Auburn's just going to fall completely flat on their face, this is it. Instead, what happens? Auburn's up 24 at halftime. Auburn wins by 16. And what was especially impressive about that game, Jabari Smith, the potential number one, number two, number three pick in the draft, he didn't play that well. He finished with 10 points in a game where he was far from the best player on the floor, and other guys stepped up. I've been worried about Auburn's guards. Kid Wendell Green could play, man. Kid Wendell Green, 13 points uh, per game this season, 22 on Tuesday. So I'm just telling you, Auburn, like that was a team, you know, we talk about who's number one, and we've just been putting Duke in that conversation. We've just been putting Purdue. We've just been putting Baylor. I don't know if Auburn's number one in the country. They're really, really, really good, and they're only going to get better as Alan Flanagan gets more comfortable. Uh, just looking through some other results. Uh, first of all, Michigan loses again. They lose at Rutgers by eight. Not going to lie, next time where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong, I had Hunter Dickinson as my national player of the year. Uh, he's been awesome. He's averaging 17 and nine. Everybody else, not so much. But Michigan, I told you in the preseason, I said, look, I thought that there was a possibility that this team could struggle for two reasons. One, they had a point guard last year named Mike Smith, transferred in from Columbia, was a high-volume scoring guard that turned into a great point guard. I said, can you strike lightning in a bottle twice? They bring in a kid, Devontae Jones, from Coastal Carolina, same kind of deal. High-scoring guard, high-volume guard. Can he be a distributor? He has not been so far this season. He is leading the team in assists, but only three and a half per game. And two, I said the three-point shooting. Three-point shooting opened up everything last year for Michigan. And this year, the three-point shooting just wasn't as good. And so right now, they're struggling. Right now, they're not very good. But Michigan falls to 7-5. and five. That's kind of a noteworthy uh, you know, result. Because in the Big Ten, I can criticize the Big Ten. I think it's a little bit down. But there's not a lot of easy wins. Ohio State almost lost the other day at Nebraska. Wisconsin goes on the road and beats Purdue. There's not a lot of easy wins in the Big Ten, and I think it's going to be tough for Michigan to dig themselves out of it. On the flip side, team we got to give credit to, Illinois. Took care of business, played a good Minnesota team. Minnesota plays hard. Minnesota's a decent team. Minnesota came into last night at 10-1 on the season, and Illinois went in there and won convincingly by 25 points, 26 points. It's worth noting, Illinois started the year 2-2 two and two during that four-game stretch where Kofi Coburn missed games. With Kofi in that lineup, they're now 8-1 and one on the season. Obviously, Andre Corbello's out. Maybe that's to their benefit. Andre Corbello was turning the ball over a ton. They seem to have hit a groove at Illinois. They're playing really well. Last result that's worth noting for two different reasons. Vanderbilt, how about them Commodores? Go on the road and beat Arkansas at Bud Walton Arena. First of all, I'll say this. I've done nothing but criticize Jerry Stackhouse since literally the day he was hired. Uh, some guy that was from the G League took over as Vanderbilt's AD. He comes in. He immediately fires Bryce Drew, which I didn't think was justified. That was the year that Bryce Drew lost Darius Garland for the season to a season-ending injury. And he brings in his buddy Jerry Stackhouse. I said, I don't think it's going to work. But to their credit, Vanderbilt has now won four in a row. They took care of BYU on a neutral court, and they went to Arkansas and get a win. And I don't think Vanderbilt's a tournament team this year, but I'll tell you this, they're not a pushover anymore either. There are teams at the bottom of the SEC that are much worse than Vanderbilt. Georgia's much worse than Vanderbilt. Missouri's much worse than Vanderbilt. I think South Carolina's probably worse than Vanderbilt. And when you got Scottie Pippen Jr. on your team, you're going to be in games. Scottie Pippen Jr. averaging almost 19 points per game, preseason SEC player of the year. I don't think he's going to win it, but they're going to be really they're going to be a tough out. The days of just marking down Vanderbilt as an automatic win on your schedule, I think those days are obviously done as they go to Arkansas and get the win. Obviously, from Arkansas's perspective, I mean it's really concerning, right? Coming off an Elite Eight appearance last year, best season in recent history, first Elite Eight since 1995 when you make the Final Four. But now Arkansas is sitting at 10-4 and 0-2 and in SEC play. And what I would say about Arkansas, listen, I'm not ready to give up yet. Coach Muss has, has a sample size of he always figures it out 
since he's gotten to college basketball. I mean, you go through his seasons as a college basketball coach. Year one takes over at Nevada. They go from one of the worst teams, they, from the worst team in the Mountain West to 24 wins, three straight NCAA tournaments after that, gets to Arkansas. Arkansas in year one, I believe they would have been a tournament team. One, if there had been an NCAA tournament, gets canceled because of COVID. Two, Isaiah Joe gets hurt for most of that year. They also had Mason Jones, who maybe should have won SEC Player of the Year. And then last year, they make the Elite Eight. So I have trust that Coach Muss is going to figure it out. But right now, you know, they just have a lot of parts, and I don't think they know where what pieces go together and who works and who doesn't. And part of it's because of natural stuff, right? Injuries. J.D. Note was out a few games ago when Arkansas, uh, you know, when Arkansas opened SEC play with a loss at Mississippi State. Your best player is not playing. That's what's going to happen. Um, but I think the other thing is, I, I think you're still figuring it out. Um, I think you're still trying to figure out what pieces work together. And right now, it's pretty straightforward. You're turning the ball over too much, almost 13 per game, and you're shooting 30% from three. And this is a team, I think there's a lot of talent on this roster, but it takes time. I was just talking about it with LSU a minute ago. LSU is a completely different team than last year because they have a completely different roster from last year, and it's much the same with Arkansas. I think there's very good pieces on this team. Jalen Williams is really good. Devo Davis, for whatever reason, it isn't clicking, but at some point, I just feel like it's going to click. He's averaging nine and a half points per game, basically the same stats he had last year when he was basically the key co- one of the key cogs that led Arkansas to win Elite Eight. But beyond J.D. Note, I don't think you know what you're getting on any given night. Stanley Amude was awesome last night, but he's been inconsistent. Audis Tony has been good at certain times, but he's been inconsistent. You're not getting great three-point shooting. I do think this thing gets figured out. But I do think it's officially panic time. Like, if you want to panic as a Hogs fan, I completely get it. I completely get it as a Hogs fan because right now you're 10-4. and Um, You've lost your first two SEC games. You play, uh, you know, Hofstra a few weeks ago. You lose a weird one there. And I think what's frustrating is every night it's a little bit different, right? Some nights you get performance from this guy but not that guy. Sometimes the defense lets you down and the offense is great. Sometimes the offense is great, but sometimes the defense gets stops, but the offense can't make plays. And so I trust that Coach Muss will figure it out because he always figures it out. But this is a frustrating, frustrating team right now. And with that said, I think it's time for me to get out of here. Just looked at the clock, realized how long this show has gone. So I appreciate you guys listening to today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. What a loaded show. How about our buddy Caleb Williams? How about our buddy Jim Harbaugh? Who would have guessed? We're here in January. We're still talking a ton of college football, uh, but obviously a lot of college hoops as well. Before we get out of here, I want to remind you guys, please make sure that you're subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, iTunes, the Podcast Addict app, Podbean, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed. Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead, give us a quick five stars. Make sure you got all our merch, Big Pig Invasion, Revenge Tour. Probably not the best day to promote those two shirts. Mike F. and Woodson, we got a lot of other good stuff coming, so make sure you're paying attention. Follow Aaron underscore Torres. Also, Torres on the Hogs, Torres on UK, Torres on the Vols, whatever. Time to get out of here. Wanted to say thank you for listening to today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. I will be back on Friday with a new episode of the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chumpacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary vgw group void where prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply